So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. So my plan next week is to uh, fly to Edmonton from Vancouver. Myself, my wife, who's also a delegate, and uh, our two-year-old daughter, who is politically unaffiliated. But uh, otherwise, all voting members of the family will be uh, going to vote against Thomas Mulcair in the leadership review. Hi, Jane. Hi, Sapria. So you're filling in for Desmond this week. I am. Yeah, we've got uh, estrogen-filled Canada Land comments coming up, and we've got a whole lot that we need to get into. Of course, the NDP is having a leadership convention at the end of the week. In Edmonton. Yes, so whether or not Mulcair will stay on, we've got listener reaction to that. We've got a bunch of listeners called in to give us their opinion on whether Mulcair should stay and what direction the NDP should go in. And I'm going to ask you about Quebec corruption because, like, what? <laughs> yes, because like what? That, that's perfect. Um, but you know what? We have somebody much more knowledgeable than I to talk about this, Martin Patrickay, who is the Quebec bureau chief for McLean's Magazine. And he wrote the now infamous article back in 2010, Quebec, the most corrupt province. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were actually a bunch of arrests a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to get into all that. Sounds exciting. When's the movie coming out? (laughs) Oh, there really should be a movie on this. I'd go watch that in a second. I would watch that in a second. That seems like a perfect CBC kind of made-for-TV movie right there. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but they just got a bunch of funding, so here's some free advice. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) And more free advice, because I'm so great at giving my unsolicited opinion, (laughs) on how the liberals are dealing with open government and how they should stop talking about it already. And just do it? Just do it. Just Nike it up. I'm Sapria Devetti. I'm Jane Litvinenko. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is supported by Audible.com. If you go to audibletrial.com slash Canadaland right now, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. May I recommend a book that's not related to politics at all? Yes, please do, Jane. (laughs) I highly recommend Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which is a collection of essays from Joan Didion. It is my favorite book and one of the best essay collections I've ever read. Yeah, you know, and if you're like me, where you don't really have a lot of time in the day and being on a bus or a streetcar and reading makes you nauseous, Mm. Audible is kind of a lifesaver in that respect. Mm Mm-hmm. So go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand right now for a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. 
So as we all know, the NDP leadership convention is happening in Edmonton at the end of the week. And uh, this is where party members will vote on who their next leader should be. So the big question is, of course, whether Tom Mulcair will stay at the head of the party or whether someone new will step in. Yeah, maybe a breath of fresh air in Edmonton of all places. (laughs) In October, there's a lot of hope that Mulcair would step up and there could potentially be the first NDP government. But then they ended up losing miserably. They went from 103 seats to 44. That's awful. You know what? When you put it in those terms, it is absolutely awful. But I just want to point out that it was actually their second best showing ever. So make of that what you will. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, fair enough. Um, But, you know, for anybody to go from the official opposition down to third party status, and especially with all the hype surrounding them when the writ was dropped and when the election was called early days of the election, definitely let a lot of people down. So we actually got some listener reaction to hear what they thought about whether Mulcair should stay on or not. Okay, we have Jared Hazard, who recently stepped down as the executive team member of the Vancouver South Riding Association for the NDP. I hate to make it personal to Mulcair, but the bottom line is that he wasn't able to sell the progressive vision for the country. And he's not a charismatic guy. And if if you're not going to be charismatic in selling a, a progressive vision, then you need to be consistent and you need to be principled. And I think he's kind of viewed as somebody who's takes a stand on some issues, but then is also willing to do the politically expedient thing. And I don't think that's going to fly with the left side of the party. Jared clearly told it like it is. Um, (laughs) I don't think that the NDP was even selling a progressive vision during the election. I think that was the problem that, you know, the liberals were able to outflank them on the left, especially when, and, you know, we see this a lot now that Trudeau is doing a lot of these post, I don't know, call them post-mortem or like hindsight kind of interviews. And he said multiple times now that he realized that they were going to win the election once they came out and announced that they were going to run deficits to, you know, invest in infrastructure while the NDP and the conservatives were groaning on about balancing the budget against all costs. And I think that ultimately, especially when you're talking about the Quebec base anyway, uh, with the current liberal government currently running a few austerity measures and under all circumstances trying to get Quebec not only to a balance, but to a surplus, it really didn't sit well when they announced they were going to go ahead and balance the budget. I agree. I think there was a bit of a rude awakening during the election. During the first little while, everybody was tied neck and neck. It was, you know, so even. But then as voters started realizing what it is the NDP is proposing, they started just dropping and dropping and dropping in the polls. And I think it's you're right. It's because it wasn't a progressive platform. Yeah. I am going to push back on the charismatic thing, though, because watching Tom Mulcair in action during question period while he was opposition leader was a thing of beauty. Hot. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. Yo, t- 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 Tom Mulcair with his prosecutorial? How do you say that? Let's go with that. Okay, yeah. yeah. During the campaign, it seemed that they were trying to keep him under wraps. They didn't want yeah, that angry Tom yeah. to come out. But I think that's what people, it gets the oh base God, fired I up. I love that. I think that somebody at some point was like, maybe you should like chill and be hip like Trudeau. And he tried to do that. And like, he was nothing. He was like a wet napkin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I also don't even know if Canadians, you know, Trudeau being the the of course the the outlier here, but I don't know if Canadians really 
are aching or need to vote for a charismatic leader in the same way that, for example, in the U.S., you always you always want to know what president you would rather have beer with, right? Right. It's not like Stephen Harper was. Yeah. Himself. He, you know, he had a, a haircut that you could set your watch to, and like was kind of straight edge, a policy wonk, and people love that about yeah. him. Like Canadians are a little less showy like that. All right, so it's all coming to a head. People are, are, are going to be watching this thing. And uh, we got Charlie Demers, a comedian in Vancouver, to tell us that he's actually flying from Vancouver <laughs> to Edmonton with his entire family to vote against Mulcair. So, I mean, that's, that's some serious dedication right there. Not all heroes wear capes. I think that the NDP has got a lot of problems, and getting rid of uh, Mulcair as leader certainly will not solve all of them. But I don't see any means of beginning the kind of conversations and the transformations that have to happen without first removing him as leader. Yeah, so I agree with that actually pretty wholeheartedly. I think the NDP's greatest problem right now is how to position themselves in a way that you're going to appeal to a certain demographic that includes your base so that you're viable to either form opposition or form government at some point, but also stay true to your progressive leftist ideals and make sure that your base is still happy. You know, I would even ask whether the NDP really knows who their base is right now. Yeah, Jane, that's a really good point. You know, for the longest time, their base was in Quebec. But as we saw, you know, in this past election, they ended up losing some of those seats. Uh, but they actually picked up quite a bunch of seats in the prairies. So mm. do they need to shift that? I don't know. That's it's all remains to be seen. I'm not an NDP strategist here. But if I'm going to give them advice, I think it would be you can't keep letting the liberals outflank you on the left. Yeah, absolutely. That's just embarrassing and awkward for everyone. Yeah, because the other thing with his base being in Quebec in this past election is that I think what the rest of Canada doesn't know to the same degree is that Mulcair was actually a minister in a center-right liberal government under Jean Charest. So for a lot of Quebecers, it was like, well, who the heck are you? Are you right-leaning? Are you left-leaning? You know, and he, when he was on Tourmal d'Empal, a very popular public affairs program on that airs on Sunday night in Quebec, the first question the host asked was, "Was who are you? Because he felt that Quebecers didn't really have a good grasp of that. And I think that also played into a lot of his issues and a lot of the NDP's issues throughout the campaign. And we saw that with not really necessarily playing to the Quebec base, with coming out with subsidized daycare, uh, which, of course, Quebec already has, you know, opening the Constitution to abolish the Senate. It's not really something that a lot of Quebecers are eating up at the moment. So there's a few issues there with the Quebec base. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting that they're still aiming at that Quebec base. Their report that was recently released about, you know, all the problems that are uh, happening at the with the NDP focused on making sure they are including Quebec issues in their national platform. But I do wonder whether Quebec's kind of gotten over the NDP or maybe just stepped away from it for a while. And he still won a fair amount of seats in Quebec, so he still has some support there. But it's definitely time for them to do some soul searching in terms of what they want to represent for Quebecers and Canada overall. So we also spoke to Michael Vernon from the Yukon, uh, who is a former card-carrying member of the party, and he's actually not sure whether Mulcair should go or not. I'm really in two minds about this, because I think historically the NDP has benefited uh, usually when they retain their leader. You know, Jack Layton's biggest success came in his fourth election, and Ed Broadbent, 20 years previously, saw a similar kind of pattern of, of increasing his seats on each election as people got more familiar with him and his, his party and his policies. So on one hand, you know, I think the NDP could benefit from uh, retaining more care. 
But on the other hand, it really depends if the membership likes the direction of the policies. Because if he's heading in a direction that they just don't like, then maybe they are better to cut their losses. That's a, that's a good point. You know, the NDP doesn't have the same history of cannibalizing their own leaders that, you know, the, the liberals and the conservatives have. And yeah, the president is there for NDP leaders staying on a little bit longer and gaining more momentum, gaining more support. So that that's not, you know, those are all good points that Michael Vernon made. Yeah, but, you know, to speak to his second point... A big part of the problem with the NDP is the platform that they put forward during the election. And it's not a matter of getting to know that platform and warming up to it. It's a matter of overhauling it. And I think that's where the leader overhaul should also come. Yeah, true. And you know what? There's no real heir apparent to Mulcair either in the Mm -hmm. same way that when the Liberals ran their last leadership contest, uh, I can't think of, of anybody in the NDP that's really like gunned up for, you're like, oh, well, that's exactly who would take his place, you know? And speaking from a PR perspective, maybe it'd be stronger for the NDP to elect a new leader to build up more excitement for the party. Totally. I would love to see a female leader. Ah, uh, Yes. So, Supriya, you're from Quebec. Indeed I am. La belle province. <laughs> I'm going to need you to babysit me a little bit here. What the heck happened there a few weeks ago? What is going on? Oh, yeah, Quebec. Huh. <laughs> well, first of all, that's a question you could ask me at any given point. But a few weeks ago, Quebec's anti-corruption squad, UPAC, went in and made seven arrests total. It spanned a lot of people. The former deputy premier of the province. Wow. Yes. And it spanned both liberal and Parti Québécois. A lot went down, but you know who can actually explain things a little bit more to us is my buddy Marty Patrickay knows a lot about this because he is the Quebec bureau chief for McLean's magazine. And he wrote the now infamous piece back in 2010 called Quebec, the most corrupt province, which was before we knew half of what we know now in terms of all of the influence peddling and the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, backdoor dealings that went on. So here's Marty telling us exactly what happened. When I wrote the article in 2010, there was all sorts of pressure on the government at the time. I mean, I can't take full credit for it, obviously. My article was one of many in which uh, the government at the time launched measures to sort of tackle this issue of corruption because it was starting to hurt the political brand. They came up with the UPAC, which is the uh, the Permanent Anti-Corruption Police Force, and the Charbonneau Commission. They worked sort of in tandem, completely separate, but worked to similar information. So what happened is that UPAC made an arrest of Natalie Normando, and... uh, I did a touchdown dance, I guess. <laughs> There's several charges among them is bribing a uh, public official and influence peddling among them. They're fairly serious charges. I don't know what evidence UPAC has, but it would seem to stem from the, the political financing arm. Under Normando, who was uh, deputy premier, she was also the former minister of municipalities here in Quebec. She did a fair bit of fundraising within the engineering corps in Quebec. Now, what UPAC is alleging, and which sort of came out in Charbonneau as well, was that a lot of those donations that were made were so-called straw man donations. Corporate donations are illegal in Quebec. So, in order to get around that, they would solicit engineering firms to ask their employees to donate to the party, and then the engineering firms would repay their employees. This went on for a long time. It's been well-documented. Both the PQ and the Liberal Party of Quebec availed themselves of this patently illegal device to sort of get around Quebec's election laws. And it would seem that, that it stems from that. There was also a case whereby she uh, allegedly favored an engineering firm called Rush, R-O-C-H-E, 
to do a job up in uh, the north of Montreal, a place called Brawiral, despite what our own civil servant suggested. And so after, you know, Marty wrote this initial article that's now infamous, of course, mm-hmm. um, I, it kind of put a lot of pressure on the then Charest government to open up uh, a, a commission and in, an inquiry really into the construction industry and what may or may not have been going on. So the Charbonneau Commission was then set up. Basically, the Charbonneau Commission was brought forth by Jean Charest. Uh, he wasn't altogether happy to have to do it, but he did it out of political pressure. He brought it about and have basically looked into... Quebec's construction industry and everything that, as I believe the mandate was from 1998 to 2010, and everything that was in, in there. So you go from municipal, provincial, uh, didn't touch federal, unfortunately. So all of the stuff that we're talking about now, all of this illegal financing, all the, the links between engineering firms and the political parties, the influence of, of organized crime within the construction industry, this all came out during the Charbonneau Commission. Now, the interesting thing about organized crime is that there's a report in the 70s called Le Rapport Clich that uh, outlined a lot of this stuff. And the thing that struck me when I was watching the Charbonneau Commission was how little had changed in terms of the influence of organized crime in the, in the construction industry between, like, 1976, I believe it came out, and 2013. All the stuff everybody knew about, but nothing was done about it, for whatever reason. Well, that explains why there's so much construction on the way into Montreal. (laughs) 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 You know, the most insane part of this to me is how removed the rest of Canada is from this scandal. I mean, obviously, I look at the way the media reacts. And to me, you know, I see these words like Charbonneau Commission and corruption and charges, and I'm like... What is happening? And it, to me, it's so overwhelming that, you know, it's scary to sit down and parse it because there's just so much happening. And this is just one testament to how long it's been happening for also. Yeah, totally. And I think you really hit the nail on the head right there when you said that the rest of Canada is kind of plugged out from this story as opposed to being plugged in. Um, <laughs> because if you look at, you know, media headlines and, and whatnot on every front page in Montreal and every single you know, city in, in mm-hmm. Quebec, all the major dailies was splashed all over. But then here in Canada, you, it was kind of, you know, I don't even know if it made above the fold. Here in Canada. Yeah. Well, sorry. <laughs> my, um, my distinct society Quebec roots are coming out. I actually asked Marty if, if Quebecers actually feel the same way as you do. People are very resigned to it because they're so used to it. And if you read anything about corruption and the, the, the influence of corruption in this society, is that when people become complacent like that, through no fault of their own, because there is this barrage of bad headlines, nothing is really done about it. And I think that's sort of a lot where a lot of Quebecers are at, unfortunately. When I wrote that article, the only people who got really mad at me were the political class. Everybody else was just like, look, this stuff's been going on forever. We know about it. Thank you for bringing it out and uh, pointing it out and everything. But it wasn't really news to anybody. The automatic assumption is that politicians are corrupt and the system is up to screw you. And that's the sort of starting point for a lot of Quebecers. You know, this is making me really nostalgic for my own home country of Ukraine. (laughs) (laughs) When the Senate scandal happened, my uncle, who's very, very Ukrainian, was like, why is everybody getting their knickers in a knot over a $90,000 check? I don't get it. And that's kind of what I'm hearing here. Like... It's at a point where it's like, yep, this is happening, and I guess we'll just have to live with it. Yeah, 
you can't really blame Quebecers because it's been going on for so long and it's so much part of of the political fabric, I guess. And it's always been sort of an undercurrent. Mm-hmm. But I think to Quebec's credit, the fact that we there is an anti-corruption squad and there was an inquiry into this should be a warning to the rest of Canada, at least, and to the rest of any, any corrupt other politicians out there that if there is enough tipping point by the public outcry, y'all will get caught. So we also asked Marty about whether or not the Liberal Party has really changed because there is a new premier, uh, Premier Philip Couillard. So yeah, he got into that. Yeah, yeah Liberal Liberal 2.0. Sure, whatever. I guess I guess he can say that. Look, Normando was working for the party as recently as 2014 when Couillard was there, during the election for media training for some of their uh, for some of their staff. It's in the order. It's close to a dozen, anyways. Whatever it is, cabinet ministers that were there under Charest are there with Couillard. They've changed the campaign financing laws, but they changed the campaign financing laws in 1977, and nothing changed. People found a way to get around it. The culture within the Liberal Party of Quebec has not changed one iota under Couillard. I mean, that's interesting that he says that, Jane, especially because considering now the Ontario Liberals are coming under a little bit of fire for <laughs> thir- for things like fundraising, corporate and union donations, which, of course, are allowed in Ontario, unlike mm-hmm. in Quebec, and third party advertising. Anywho, all of this is coming to a head when for the last week or so, headlines here in Ontario have been like, Wynne needs to do something. There's been a bunch of editorials and a lot of people calling on her to tighten up this donation system. Yeah. And for anybody who's listening outside of Ontario... There were a lot of problems with our donation system, but one of them was just the way the donations were funneled to the party through an illusion that they were, you know, charitable dinners. And uh, one of the things I read that I found really funny that um, Andrew Coyne pointed out on Twitter was that even some lobbyists who deal with the Ontario government told the Globe and Mail that... Operatives regularly tell people who want to discuss policy to attend party fundraisers to get their issues heard. The lobbyists, speaking on a condition of anonymity, of course, said they would actually welcome stricter campaign finance rules to stop liberals from constantly shaking them down for donations. The lobbyists are like, guys, chill out. Lobbyists securing an ethical future for Canada. So just bringing it back to Quebec here, one thing that I also don't think the rest of Canada was really necessarily that plugged into was when this 2010 article came out and when McLean's was really going hard into the liberals and really trying to dig deep and finding out how much corruption there really was. A lot of people were calling for Marty's head. People hmm. were calling him uh, an Anglo, you know, because, of course, there's that Anglo-Franco divide. So he was saying he's an Anglophone who's just a Quebec basher. A bunch of politicians were demanding apologies from him. So, you know, I think he should just walk around with a big I told you so t-shirt at all times. <laughs> uh, but we asked him about who's been asking for an apology. Uh, Marty, I just want to ask you one last question. When you wrote that article in 2010, didn't a bunch of politicians demand an apology from not only you, but but McLean's as well? Well, well funny enough, uh, Natalie Normando asked, demanded my apology, uh, an apology from me on behalf of McLean's on Tout le monde en parle, which is a popular uh, Quebec talk show with an audience of about a million people. We were on there together, and she expressed her disgust in me in my magazine and, and said that I should apologize. I would welcome the apology from her now, but I don't think she's paying very much. Uh, yeah, a, a lot of people are. I mean, Sharae Sh- wrote, a, wrote a letter uh, intimating that I was anti-Quebecer. The federal parliament expressed its extreme sadness or melancholy or whatever it was in McLean's magazine when it came out. And uh, the silence is deafening now. <laughs> Doesn't it seem odd that 
politicians would denigrate a journalistic outlet for doing its job? Yeah, that almost never happens. <laughs> All right, Sapria, here's my time to shine. <laughs> <laughs> You've been shining throughout, Jane. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, thank you. You too. You're lovely. So the government is soliciting consultations from the public on how to become more open. <sighs> Again. <laughs> yes, again, because the conservatives did that. They had open government 2.0. They had a bunch of public consultations on transparency. And then I'm not sure where it actually ended up going. Did anything happen, Jane? I mean, it's really great to have a conversation. I'm really glad that we've been co having conversations for the last like decade. <laughs> uh, it just seems to me like a reason to waste time and money instead of taking action. Yeah. Like, do we have our own ideas on how to make government more transparent? Because I think we might. Always. We always have ideas and they're always great. For example, one thing that would make the government more accountable is, this is for me personally, overhauling Bill C-51, which is a national disgrace and should be fixed or just overall deleted, just undo. And that's one idea, and that's a great one. I'd also like to personally know how and why solitary confinement is used. We don't really know. We don't know how often it's used. We don't know why it's even used. And quite frankly, I think it's a very inhumane thing to do. There have been a bunch of studies out to show just how damaging it can be. Mm -hmm. And I don't think as a Western civilized country, we should be engaging in that practice. I also really want to make sure that we have an open and accountable oversight for CSC and CSIS because that was one of their election promises. And as we see the debate over privacy play out more and more, I think that this is something we need to get on right now. Another thing for me, and we talked about this on an earlier show, was the Saudi arms deal and arms deals generally. We mm -hmm. don't know a whole lot uh, what goes down in those deals. We don't know the discussions that lead up to it. And right now, we don't even really know the content of the Saudi deal. Absolutely. I really liked on that show when uh, your guest suggested creating an oversight committee for these kinds of deals. And I was reading the news this morning and Stephen Chase in The Globe reported that not only are they going to sanitize their report on human rights in Saudi Arabia and the deal, but they're also going to ask anybody who wants to see this public, unclassified report apply to see it through an access to information request, which is a very costly, very lengthy process that, in my opinion, should just not be there. And after the Globe and Mail uh, has probed. Only then Dion's office was like, okay, never mind. We'll just let you see the report. Why does it take a question from a publication to put out a report into the public that is unclassified and meant for the public? Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just ask why we even have those A-tips at all to a degree. And I mean, this may sound naive. I am not a journalist, but to me, it just seems that if the information is public, then just put it up online somewhere, put it in a library, have people access it. If it's public information, then the public should be able to access it. Totally. There's a whole open government movement to do that. But I think what access to information laws allow people to do, allow the government to do, is use a lot of legal loopholes to either completely obstruct information or delay putting it out until it's no longer relevant or use any kind of tactic to put journalists or anybody from the public who wants to know this information to just keep it from them. And that to me is scary. 
And so that's our show for this week. If you want to continue the conversation, then please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just type in Canada Land Commons into that search bar. Our wonderful producer is Kevin Sexton. And that great music you're hearing is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to visit the show, go to CanadaLandShow.com. Sign up for our newsletter, Not Sorry. If you want to email us, you can email Jane at Jane at CanadaLandShow.com. And they can tweet at you. At Sabrina Vetti. I'm not spelling that out for anybody, though. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can subscribe to our upcoming arts and culture show, The Imposter, and hear a preview on our iTunes feed now. If you like the show, and we know you do, then support us. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of Shortcuts, guest hosted by Sachi Cole, is going to come out on Thursday. And the next episode of Commons is going to come out next Tuesday. That's it for us this week, folks. Bye. Conspiracy. Corruption. Bribery. Quebec's National Assembly. Water purification. Quebec corruption. Because, like, what? Coming soon. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.